Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is the final episode in our adult education series that explores the major denominations of Judaism other than humanistic. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom explains what Reconstructionist Judaism is and explores the similarities and differences to humanistic Judaism. How many of you have ever been to a Reconstructionist service? So, and I have a question, because my cousins, um, they belong, I think, is Reconstructionist, and now it's independent. Okay. But I don't understand what that means. What independent means? It means they don't want to pay dues to a national organization. <laughs> or they don't want to feel constrained by a particular ideology. Okay. So you'll have congregations that are basically reform congregations, but they don't want to pay dues to the big group. Or they want to be a little more flexible. They don't want to buy into labels. See, there's a a lot of thought out there in the Jewish world now that um, people are post-denominational. They're not interested in having a label for what they're doing that fits in with, you know, they could do the same thing everywhere else. Um, I think it's a little premature, uh, and I think those categories are useful. You know, it's like people who say, well, I'm not a liberal, I'm independent. I just happen to vote for Democrats every single time. Um, so, uh, they don't like the label, but their behavior might be very similar. So, my guess is a congregation that was Reconstructionist and is now independent, there may be organizational issues, financial issues, or... I think, yeah. You know what I just thought of, um, is it, I think it's name, is it Nancy that lives in Naperville? She's yeah. A new, she's a new member? Uh-huh. Newer member? She actually, I think that's where she used to belong, so she okay. basically wants me to ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the, the trick with Reconstructionism is that if you read their prose, if you read their English material, it's very similar to humanistic Judaism. If you read their services, it's very different from humanistic Judaism. And what we're going to explore this morning is why we think very similar things, but wind up with very different celebrations. The basic question, on uh, which we came to different answers, is what do you do if you don't believe in the traditional prayers? If you don't believe that there's a God who is a king, who intervenes in the world, who writes Torahs, who cares what you eat, who knows if you've been sleeping, who knows if you're awake, who knows if you've been bad or good. If you don't believe in that kind of figure, which is the figure described in the traditional liturgy, um, you know, our father, our king, uh, someone who desires confession, who wants praise for himself, who, whom you can ask for healing, and all these things. If you don't believe the meaning, the literal meaning of those prayers, what do you do? You know, maybe you've studied science, or you studied archaeology, or any number of other fields, and you don't agree with those prayers. What do you do? Well, the first approach you can take is, who cares? It's in Hebrew, it's tradition, this is what we've always said, so we're just going to say it, and, you know, I'll think academically in the university, and I'll just say these words because they're old when I'm in the synagogue. And not entirely, but to some extent, that's the approach the conservative movement has taken, where in their rabbinical seminary, in their flagship uh, programs at the Jewish Theological Seminary, they teach an academic historical approach to early Jewish history, and they're open to philosophy and those those deeper questions. 
but the liturgy stays what it is, mostly, with a few additions, uh, but by and large it stays traditional. Um, the second option, if you don't believe in those traditional prayers, is you can uh, correct it by cutting. That is, you keep the ones you believe in, and the ones you don't believe, or the ones that you can sort of stretch to believe in, but the ones that you can't, you just cut them out. So the early reform movement, as we discussed, uh, cut out some prayers they didn't believe in, like a, a restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, the idea of a personal messiah, um, uh, talking about the animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. They didn't, they didn't believe in that, and they also thought it would be bad PR for them, so they cut them out. Um, and you might also be very creative in your translations. So you'll keep the Hebrew the Hebrew, but your translation will be a little bit more acceptable. Um, and that way people might not know what it is, or at least they'll feel like this is the, the direction I'm taking when I'm understanding what I'm saying. The third option is to actually go into the text and change it to match what you believe. So if you don't believe in a God who's a king, then you don't say the word melech, king in the blessing. Remember Bella Kaolam in the traditional book. If you don't believe that God is a king, like a king, then you go in and you change it. So some, some Jewish communities will say Ruach Kaolam, the spirit of the world, which is more their kind of imminent uh, God is in everything theology. Well, they even went into the Hebrew text and changed it to say the spirit of the world as opposed to the king of the world. It still ends with a sound, so you can say it to the same uh, tunes. But that for them seems to uh, compromise in a way that works. You change the text to match what you believe. Not everyone does that. Most people are into the, I don't care because it's in Hebrew, or we'll cut out some of the more egregious stuff, but we'll leave the rest as it is. Um, and then option 3A, uh, in addition to changing the old text, is you might even want to create new texts that match what you believe even more clearly. Because now you're not just trying to fudge it or stretch it or edit it or tweak it, you're starting from scratch, and you're saying exactly what you believe. <coughs> now, both humanistic Judaism and Reconstructionism have gone as far as step three. They're willing to change the text to match what they believe, and even create additional texts. But they've done so in very different ways. So what I've handed out for you are a couple of pages copied from the um, uh, Sabbath and Festivals prayer book called Kol HaNeshama, which has a nice pun to it. it uh, it's a line from Psalms. Uh, from the, uh, the phrase which means all that breathes will praise God but also if you just hear the sound of it could mean the voice of the soul or the voice of the breath um, so that's uh, a nice resonance for the, uh, that movement but I, I included a couple pieces from the section on the Shema so you can see how they approach the material <coughs> so uh, we'll start on the side, um, the pages are 246, 247, if you look at the bottom. So we'll look at that side first. This is the section on the Shema and its blessings. Um, the congregation rises and faces the ark. The congregation responds with the second line. Um, so the, uh, the leader of the service says, Baruch Hu Adonai Mavrach. Now, interestingly, that name yud heh in the Hebrew, uh, which they do write out in the Hebrew letters, um, in a traditional prayer book, you would just have yud yud because they wouldn't want to actually write out the four-letter name. That's in a Torah scroll, but not necessarily in a prayer book. But in the English translation, notice they translate it as the infinite. And then in the paragraph below it, it's the same yud heh vav name, but they translate it as eternal one. You'll see it in all caps. They, over the course of this prayer book, they translate the name of God in lots of different ways. Not just as Adonai or 
the Lord, as you'll see in a conventional service. They're trying to draw in a lot of different approaches. So uh, again, you have the very traditional text. Um, so in that blessing on the uh, the second uh, Hebrew selection, so it's exactly the same traditional formula. But notice what it says in the English. Blessed are you, eternal one, our God, the sovereign of all worlds. Well, it's not a king. Sovereign? Yeah. Is that different? Sovereign is softer, I think, than king. It's the ruling power, but not necessarily the absolute monarch. And, and it doesn't um, imply a sex. Because the king has to be male. That's right. It's also gender neutral. The queen of England. She's, <laughs> She's a sovereign. sovereign. Exactly. It's gender neutral. Very good. Um, now, the Hebrew still says atah, which is the male form of you. It still says melech, which is king. It's still using he pronouns if it's talking to baruchu, blessed is he, not it in Hebrew. There's no it for that. Um, so, the Hebrew remains unreconstructed, but the English is uh, transformed, and the commentary, the footnotes at the bottom, provide additional ways to tweak the meaning. So notice the commentary on the bottom right. The first major theme following Baruch Hu is that of creation. We wonder at the order, the complexity, the vastness of our world. Struck by our own smallness, we are nonetheless also caught up in the grace of having a home amidst the splendor that is nature. Our wonder and our sense of smallness give way to thankfulness for the gift of life in this world. Now, is there anything in that paragraph that we would disagree with? Maybe the word creation we might not use, but if we use it as existence, we absolutely, it's amazing that we exist in this vast and complex universe. So the footnote is fine. The Hebrew text and the original, the prayer text is very different. So the footnote is more for humanistic than the content of the service. And then notice on the left, it highlights the fact that there are new forms of blessing out there. Any place where a blessing occurs in the liturgy, the following elements can be combined to make alternative formulas. So you can use the traditional form, Baruch right? Sovereign of all worlds. Or you can use option B, Now that's the feminine form. At is the feminine you, as opposed to Ata, which is the masculine form. And then you use the word Shekhinah, which is the feminine God image uh, that comes out of Jewish mysticism. Um, life of all the worlds. So again, you have a more imminent sort of a feminine theology. And then option three is a more secular version. Let us bless the source of life. Again, notice that ruach instead of melech substitution. So they give you this alternate formula. And so if you were a more secular-minded person in a Reconstructionist congregation, you might say, Nevaret et chayim ruach ha'olam, every time there's a blessing, and you feel somewhat comfortable doing it. But notice it's below the line. It's not above the line. The changes don't get above the line. It's below the line. So if you flip the page over to the next section. Yes. Different people are saying different things during the Occasionally, day. or different uh, prayer leaders may, might choose to do it differently. Um, again, when you have the traditional text at the top, and it's the one that everybody knows, most likely that's going to be the one that's said. And if the objective is a connection with the 
um, liturgical traditions of the Jewish people, then Nifarech at Enechaim doesn't do it. But Baruch Atarunai, that's what does it. So this is presented as an option, but it's clearly uh, a secondary tier of options. It's less, much less likely to be used just because of the way that it's uh, set up. So if you say it in Hebrew, well, it doesn't count? No, it counts. You just, I just mean something else when I say it. No, but I think what Bill's saying is, in the English, you're being true to your beliefs of how you interpret the universe, but because it's Hebrew, it's okay that... Our kids cross in Serbian because it doesn't count. Right. Okay. So, um, when, I, when I try to explain the difference between humanistic Judaism and Reconstructionism, I'll often present a balance between continuity with the past and the integrity of saying clearly what you believe. They're both, they're both important values, but you sometimes have to make choices. So in our case, the balance tips to the integrity of saying clearly what we believe. We lose something on the continuity side. We're not saying, oh, say shalom, just like our ancestors said, oh, say shalom. We say, nah, say shalom. Continuity is so important. He named my toe, he made shalom left, and we have plenty of other examples, but we tip it this way. On the Reconstructionist side, they tip to the continuity side. The, even if the words don't clearly say what they believe, they want to say the traditional words. They want to have that connection to the past. So they're more willing to stretch the meanings a bit, or to just not think about the meanings, as we'll see a little bit later. So here's another example. If you look on the back of that sheet, page 276, 277, we have the actual text of the Shema itself. Notice the English translation again. Listen, Israel, the eternal is our God, the eternal one alone. Again, not what you're used to in the conventional English version of the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then notice they translate that Yahweh again differently in the larger paragraph. You must love the one, not, again, the eternal, which is what they said earlier. So that's, again, showing a kind of flexibility of meaning even in that name. It includes the uh, major pieces of ritual practice, bind them as a sign on your hand, keep them visible before your eyes, and so on. And you have the traditional text there. But look at the commentary you have on the bottom right. Listen, Israel. The core of our worship is not a prayer at all, but a cry to our fellow Jews and fellow humans. It's much more universalized here. Not Eloheinu, our God, but all our God. In it we declare that God is one, which is also to say that humanity is one, that life is one, that joys and sufferings are all one, for God is the force that binds them all together. Not a personality. God is the force that binds them together. He is dark matter. He is... Uh, you know the, the little force, the little force in uh, physics. This, there is nothing obvious about this truth. For life as we experience it seems infinitely fragmented. Human beings seem isolated from one another, divided by all the fears and hatreds that make up human history. Even within a single life, one moment feels cut off from the next. Memories of joy and fullness offering us little consolation when we are depressed or lonely. To assert that all is one in God is our supreme act of faith. No wonder that the Shema, the first prayer we learn in childhood, is also the last thing we say we are to say before we die. The memory of these words on the lips of the martyrs deepens our faith as we call them out each day. Now, did those medieval martyrs, when they were saying the Shema, believe that God was the force that binds all humanity together as the crusaders were bashing their heads? I mean, this is a retrojected connection to the text. It's his how he's interpreting it, and that's up to him. But it's, again, projecting it back on the same old words. Or look at the second one. 
From recognition of our place in nature in the first blessing of this part of the service, we shifted to concern with our moral place in the second blessing. As creatures made conscious of our ultimate worth by love, we recite the Shema. We thereby enter into a partnership aimed at transforming the world in ourselves in light of that vision of ultimate worth. Now, I don't necessarily get that from reading the text of this Hebrew passage, or even better, look at the guided meditation on the left. Think of someone who loves you. Feel his or her presence. Take a deep breath and open up to the love that is coming to you. Focus on that feeling of love. Now, that could be a very humanistic experience. But again, it's mapped out on this traditional prayer. Or even uh, the last one, and you must love. You shall love your God intellectually, emotionally, and with all your deeds. Whatever you love most in these ways is your God. For the Jewish people, the deepest love should be for freedom, justice, and peace. So it's sort of a switcheroo. It says, love your God very deeply. And whatever you love deeply is your God. <laughs> Chicken or egg? Right. <laughs> Aren't uh, you circularly much? <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's a very circular experience. Okay. So what you find here is these are all creative responses to this original text. You can see in many ways how they're connected to it. But they're also very far afield from the literal meaning of the text. And this is where we diverge. We have very similar philosophical beliefs to what's described in these passages. Well, maybe a little bit less sort of supernatural, uh, aura-oriented uh, in our approach, but by and large, the idea of uh, valuing what you love deeply, uh, having values like freedom, justice, and peace, that's all great. Um, appreciating people who love you, that's a good thing. Um, you know, wanting to transform our uh, world and ourselves in the light of our vision of ultimate worth. It's all good stuff. The challenge is, and where, again, we differ from Reconstructionism is, first of all, we decided a long time ago, though we also decided everyone who chooses us and not a Reconstructionist approach, that you just can't leave the plain meaning of the text behind. The text does mean something. And the second is, it's very hard to say one thing and think something else, or to read the text above the line and read the text below the line at the same time. So doing this guided meditation of thinking of someone who loves you is not so easy to do when you're reciting I can't think about the person who's loving me while I'm reciting this. I'm doing two different things. Um, and so even if we're singing this, even if we're feeling connected to our people and all of that, on some level it doesn't connect with us on a complete holistic emotional as well as intellectual level um, because of the abiding meaning of the words. But that's, that's one way to dramatize the difference between the two. The footnote's very similar. The content of the prayer service would be very different. If you were just watching a reconstruction of service, you might think it was somewhere between reform and conservative. Very gender egalitarian, very uh, homosexuality affirming, but the content is theologically very supernatural, unless you read the footnotes or listen to the sermon, in which case it would be very humanistic. Now, reconstructionism itself began not as a separate movement. In fact, humanistic Judaism is one of the first that really saw itself as a separate movement very early on in its development. Um, Reconstructionism began as a philosophical strain within the umbrella of conservative Judaism. Uh, Mordecai Kaplan himself uh, was born in the 1880s in um, Eastern Europe. He then moved to New York. He received traditional uh, Orthodox education and a traditional Orthodox ordination, in fact. 
It was ordained in, uh, in 1903, uh, actually by, um, I thought it was Orthodox ordination, but I know here it says at the Jewish Theological Seminary, but he certainly, that was where he made his career. Uh, very shortly after ordination, he became a professor at JTS, and he was there from 1909 to 1963. So he was working as a, working as a professor for 54 years. He actually didn't die until 1982. He lived until 101 years old. Um, but he, uh, while working as a professor at the seminary, um, helped to found a new congregation called the Society for the Advancement of Judaism in 1922. Uh, he had originally worked in Orthodox synagogues, but he was progressively unhappy in that uh, world because it wasn't taking seriously what he was learning in sociology, in the history of religions, in philosophy. <coughs> And he was increasingly uncomfortable affirming beliefs that he didn't believe anymore. He also saw a real disintegration in the American Jewish community. Um, in 1922, when he founded the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, his vision was not just to have a synagogue, but what he called a synagogue center. It was the forerunner of the modern Jewish community center. The joke version of it was that it was a shul with a school and a pool. <laughs> um, what that means is a shul, a synagogue, with a school for kids and adults, and a pool for athletic and cultural and social opportunities. His, his point was that Jews need to not just pray together, but they need to be together, to play together, to learn together. That you need to create spaces for Jewish community. We don't have the shtetl anymore. It's easy to just read the New York Times. We need to find ways for Jews to reconnect. And so the idea of the synagogue center or the community center really had its uh, origin with Mordecai Kaplan. And in 1934, there was actually a, a contest held for the most original idea in Jewish life, and he, it became ultimately his master work, which is called Judaism as a Civilization. Written in 1934, I read it maybe eight years ago, and I was struck by how relevant the issues he raises are, even today. He was a wonderfully insightful person into the dynamics of the modern world and the dilemmas that it poses for Jews. The problem is I don't agree with any of his answers. <laughs> I like all the questions he asks, I just don't answer them the same way that, that he chose to. Um, now, Kaplan did not leave organized conservative Judaism for his own movement for a long time. Uh, he was, as I said, a tenured professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. He taught his ideas to a whole generation or two generations of conservative rabbis, many of whom took it and, and ran with it. Um, and he had a journal called The Reconstructionist. He published a Reconstructionist Haggadah, a Reconstructionist prayer book. Um, he wasn't really appreciated by the conservative seminary. In fact, I think that they, uh, the Jewish Theological Seminary faculty unanimously condemned his new Haggadah in 1941 when he printed it because they all thought it was too radical, changed too much. He was willing to cut. He was willing to change. He was willing to replace. He wouldn't say, this is the Torah that Moses placed before the people of Israel, because he didn't believe that. Instead, he said, it's Chaimhi, it's the tree of life, which is also a traditional phrase applied to the Torah, just not in that setting. He was willing to make that swap. And in his material, his prayer books, his sagadas, he would also include additional material at the end of the book that you could use as alternate readings. Now, when we read those alternate readings, we think, that should be the main reading. <laughs> we would swap them. You know, put the reference in the back with the traditional stuff and make the alternate reading the main reading. Well, even so, to include those alternate, more secular readings was itself somewhat radical. Um, in uh, 19, I think it was 1945, uh, the Orthodox uh, burned his siddur, his prayer book, uh, because it cut out the resurrection of the dead. 
And again, there are reformed heroes all over the place who didn't do that, but the Orthodox felt they were too goyish, they were too you know, non-Jewish to even bother with. But Kaplan, coming from an Orthodox background himself, presenting the Jewish Theological Seminary in his uh, tenured position, was presenting it as traditional. <coughs> and yet it wasn't because he had made these changes. Now his basic principle was that Judaism is a religious civilization. <clears throat> which means it evolves over time, civilizations evolve, which means it does contact other civilizations out there. Um, but it's, bit, it's built on certain building blocks, what he called the sancta, the holy pieces. And the goal of reconstructing Judaism for him was to use those sancta, those building blocks, those holy elements, but find ways to make them resonant and meaningful today and consistent with an honest intellectual uh, modern perspective on life. Um, he saw that lots of people getting college educations no longer went back to synagogue because they said this is, this is backwards. He wanted to find a way that they could still come to synagogue but still feel like they were being intellectually stimulated and respected for what they actually believed. Um, he uh, stayed in the conservative movement until 1968. His son-in-law, Ira Eisenstein, founded the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 1968, um, but he wound up living another 15 years. He uh, made Aliyah for a period of time, Israel then came back. And it's a very long and, and productive life. Um, the challenge is that he tried to have his prayers and his modernity too. Um, his message was that to appeal to Jews in modern times, you need to match <coughs> modern beliefs, like a philosophical naturalism, no literal miracles, no chosenness, he felt chosenness, the idea that Jews are the chosen people was chauvinistic and anathema to an American uh, diverse experience. Um, and uh, he believed you had to be historical as, as much as uh, reasonable. Um, one of his famous lines they quote all the time in the Reconstruction Movement is, if you don't mean it, don't say it. We would use that line, if you don't mean it, don't say it. So how does he get around, if you don't mean it, don't say it, with this? Okay. So let me take you on a couple of steps. Uh, when Sherman Wine would talk about Reconstructionism, he had a wonderful three Ds to see the core of Kaplan's philosophy. It was Dewey, Durkheim, and Davening. John Dewey and his pragmatist philosophy, but also Dewey himself wrote a book called Towards Reconstruction in Philosophy where he tried out redefining words. So when I say God, I mean a force for good in the universe. Or when I say God, I mean the power of love. And that way you can use the resonance of traditional appeals to God, but still feel like you're meaning something relevant from a modern philosophic perspective. That's the John Dewey piece. Durkheim is Emile Durkheim, the early sociologist of religion, who saw how religions uh, articulate beliefs and values of cultures. Uh, rituals have symbolic value and not just sort of supernatural interventionist value, but also that religious cultures evolve and they have these core pieces called sancta, that's the Durkheim term actually, that are uh, what you use to identify this tradition. And if you lose those, then you might be losing that tradition. And finally, the davening. He had to try and square the Dewey philosophy with the Durkheim sociology of religion with a deep commitment to saying these prayers. You see, he said, if you don't mean it, don't say it. So here's my, my reconstruction of his thought process, my forensic thought process for Kaplan. I can't not say the traditional prayers. It wouldn't feel like a Jewish service. It wouldn't feel like a communal event if I weren't saying these traditional prayers. 
So what I have to do is change what they mean. I said if you don't mean it, don't say it. So if I can change what they mean, then I can say it. Then I'll be saying what I believe, because now they mean what I want them to mean. No. Rivers don't sing. Stones don't listen. But, in a poetic sense, you can say the river sings to the stone. And you can understand a little bit of the dynamic. You see it flowing and burbling and whatever else is going on. So if you think more poetically about the liturgy, then maybe you can find a way that king of the universe doesn't really mean king of the universe. It mean, it's a way of speaking. It's uh, rhetoric. It's not necessarily the literal truth of a guy with a crown and a beard and a throne and all that stuff. That's, that's the attempt, anyways. So you can in, maybe you intuit a god from the universe. You look at the structure of the wonder of the universe and you can sort of extract evidence of a god out there. Uh, maybe you need the concept of God to preserve hope, inspiration, ideology, and so you, the language works for you. It, it has a function for you. Um, maybe the concept of God is sort of like um, Harold Kushner's concept of God and when bad things happen to good people, which is kind of a placebo God. He makes you feel better. Even if he can't intervene in the world, he is the one that gives you strength to go a little bit farther. So it is a kind of placebo, right? may not be doing anything, but you feel better about it. And it ha may have a positive result because you feel better. So here's one example um, of a phrase where Kaplan defines God. God may be defined as the power that endorses what we believe ought to be and that guarantees that it will be. Say that again slower. The power that endorses what we believe ought to be, what we believe ought to be, and that guarantees that it will be. It's an echo. We have what we believe ought to be. God, as we imagine it, endorses what we believe ought to be, and then guarantees that it will be, as if it's a separate end. So he's being very ambiguous in this language. Uh, it's trying to explain that uh, maybe our values are not just our values, they are in fact cosmic values. So when we say God in the liturgy, we're really articulating our values. We're just projecting them out and having them come back to us in a cosmic form. Um, God is like a projection of the personal. It's talking to a mirror to have a you to talk to. Right? Or a soccer ball. <laughs> or a, you know, a volleyball, if you're thinking of uh, castle. Um, now, the challenge is that, from our perspective, this just doesn't match what you're saying. Uh, and sometimes you get a little bit too far. So I want to read to you a passage from Kaplan's uh, The Meaning of God um, and how he takes a phrase and reinterprets it to mean almost the opposite of what it means. Perfecting the world under the kingdom of the Almighty. This is the phrase he's going to work on. Perfecting the world under the kingdom of the Almighty must mean the establishment of a social order that combines the maximum of individual self-realization with the maximum of social occupation. Now, did you hear that from that? Yeah, right. Kingdom of the Almighty, Almighty, becomes the maximum of individual self-realization. Now, you know, it's, it's sort of like one of these math problems where you prove two things are opposite, and yet they're both true. Um, he's, he's gotten in his reinterpretation to a conclusion that seems to be the opposite. So maybe he says, perfecting the world 
means the establishment of a social order. And the, uh, the Almighty really is a projection of our own self-actualization. And kingdom really is uh, our connection to the outside world. And so, perfecting the world under the kingdom of the Almighty means establishing a social order that combines the maximum of individuals. But you, at some point you have to look back and say, how did you get, you, you wound up with something that doesn't seem to match where you started. Um, now, since Kaplan died in the 80s, even shortly before that, um, Reconstructionism has changed somewhat. This process of redefinition is not the active uh, agenda for most Reconstructionist uh, rabbis these days, um, because in the end they just kept saying the same words and you begin to believe them. Um, and also, after a while, you realize there are other problems too. After all, they keep saying you to a god, as if there's an entity there, a top. It's all over the place, even in the English. <clears throat> so what does that mean if you don't believe in a personal god and you keep saying you as if it's a personality? So Ira Eisenstein, uh, near the end of his life, uh, was quoted in a book about the Reconstructionist uh, movement called From Ideology to Liturgy. And Eisenstein said, I would treat the traditional prayer book as an exercise in reminiscence. We come together and for a few minutes we put ourselves into the world of our ancestors, the world of our fathers, and see how it feels, how it sounds. That's all. It's a reenactment. It's colonial Williamsburg. You'll put on the outfit, you'll speak in that way, and you will feel reconnected with your past. Um, and many in the Reconstructionist movement have even gone into a kind of New Age mystical approach, where uh, they want to be able to say the old words, but they don't believe this kind of rationalist redefinition that Kaplan offered. They're not pure naturalists either. They want to have a kind of neo-mystical understanding of the indwelling of God. God is like a spark of divinity in every human being. Kaplan wouldn't have used those language, that language, but he did talk about God as a force, and so maybe that language is useful. Well. So, obviously, we have a lot in common with Reconstructionism, but there are a few issues on which we diverge strongly. Actually, when Sherwin met Mordecai Kaplan uh, near the end of his life, uh, Kaplan said, why did you bother? I already did this. <laughs> I've already created a way to be Jewish for people who are secular. In fact, Mordecai Kaplan uh, signed the first Humanist Manifesto in 1933, or whenever it was uh, issued, 34. Um, so he, he defined himself as a religious humanist. But this is one of the places where we diverge. You see, when Kaplan described a religious civilization, Judaism as a civilization, he saw it as a religious civilization built on religion. Our approach is that it's an ethnic culture. We can use the term civilization, but that means it's not confined or even primarily defined by the sancta, the religious element. Is the core of Jewish connection today the liturgy that so many Jews have forgotten, or never learned, or left behind, or object to? Or is it Jewish culture? Holidays, food, language, history, genealogy. You know, you sometimes hear people refer to as bagel and lox Jews, the cultural Jews. But there's also archaeology and reading the foreword in Moment Magazine Jews, who may not be going to synagogue. And there's the Amida and the Shema Jews, who are very attached to the traditional prayer service and want to do that. Um, 
Now, the Reconstructionists might appeal to the people who are attached to the prayer service, who don't want to feel like they wasted those several years in Hebrew school memorizing all this stuff, so now they get a chance to do it. Um, on the other hand, uh, they don't believe it anymore, so this is a fit for them. And it, uh, and it softens some of the more objectionable pieces like chosenness and, uh, and whatever. Um, again, think about Zionism. Zionism at its root was a Jewish identity based on an ethnic culture and history, not on prayer and not on religion. Uh, what we do is create celebrations based on modern Jewish literature, art, experience, and culture. Uh, what in Reconstructionism is the supplemental, the optional stuff for us becomes the core. So, a second divergence is on the approach to what we say at our celebration. Um, do we say, I pray the world will improve? Or do we say, I hope the world will improve? Or I will work to improve the world even more strong? Um, when we joyfully articulate how wonderful the world works, is it worship or is it a celebration? I was at a, uh, a co-officiated wedding, I, I co-officiated this weekend, um, at an Episcopal church in the city. Very high church, Episcopal church. You should see the hats in the audience. It was uh, very amusing. Um, but uh, what was interesting about the experience, a lot of things were interesting, but what was most interesting about the experience for me was um, at a certain point she said, uh, let us pray and bow our heads. And I thought, what would be the reaction in my congregation if I asked people to bow their heads? What is this bowing for, anyway? And in a traditional prayer service, by the way, at many points in the recitation of the liturgy, you're expected to bow. You bend your knees, you bow, you bow to the left, you bow to the right, you bow to the center. There's bowing all the time. On Yom Kippur, you're expected to lay yourself flat on the ground at a certain point in the service. Now, does one do that to a force, or to a voice, or to a spark of divinity? No, one does that for a king. Well, that was appropriate then. The term worship works for a king may not work for other concepts. You see, our goal was the consistent message in Hebrew and in English, in the commentary and the service language. We're not going to have this kind of split personality. Um, asking people to say one thing and think another one is hard to do. Language is not infinitely plastic. You see, using God to refer to this force for the good or spark of divinity is confusing because when you read God in the Bible, that's not the use of that word there. When you read God in the Talmud, that's not the use of that word there. Um, you know, a God who is imminent and invested in all the world is very different from the transcendent king God that you find described in the liturgy and the early stories. Um, why use the same name? That word has baggage. Let's use new vocabulary for these new ideas. Um, if what you celebrate is the light of inspiration and hope, then Baruch HaOr, blessed is the light. You don't need to use the um, traditional language. And it doesn't make sense on some level to us. Try praying to gravity. Thank you, gravity, for all you do to make life possible. You feel kind of odd, right? Because gravity isn't listening, and... Well, if God is a force, that's what you're doing. Or that God is a spark in every person. Thank carbon. Thank you, carbon for bringing forth bread. Well, if it weren't for carbon, we couldn't have wheat, we couldn't have ourselves, right? But to thank carbon seems very odd. So the kind of personal address to the impersonal concept creates a kind of disconnection for us. Um, and even more importantly, can you really claim that carbon atoms or gravity 
are on our side, endorse our values. Remember, Kaplan was saying that whatever you believe in most strongly is your God. God is the force that uh, endorses our values and guarantees they'll be fulfilled. Gravity doesn't guarantee anything. Carbon doesn't guarantee anything. So that's the challenge. It's taking this old liturgy and trying to fit modern scientific concepts or what's plausible philosophically given a modern understanding of the world. And for us, it's a stretch too far. Um, and if all you do is go through and tweak the liturgy, so what they'll sometimes say is instead of uh, the phrase Bacharbano, he's chosen us, they'll say Bacharbano im kol ha'amim, who chose us with all the peoples, as opposed to who chose us from all the peoples. Well, if you're looking for the literal value of it, yes, it's much more inclusive than chose us from all the people, and now he chose us with every, he chose every people differently, right? We're all equal. But are people really going to get it as they're blowing through the service? Are they going to notice all those little tweaks as they go through? And even more importantly, maybe they're missing the forest for the trees. After all, it's the entire style, strategy of the road recitation liturgy that people are leaving behind and not going to services. You know, what percent, they say that they highlight that 50% of Jews are unaffiliated at any one time. What percent of Jews attend services on a given Saturday? Very small. Now, what percent turn on their iPhones? What percent check Facebook? The ones that are on it, a large percentage, even on Saturdays. But that's because it's more relevant, interesting, meaningful, connected to them. <coughs> We're offering uh, historically has not been. Um, the other point that I think is fair to highlight when it comes to language is that it's fair to give our ancestors the dignity to believe what they did. When they said God, they didn't mean a force. They didn't mean sparks. They meant a king, not a sovereign. They meant a king. Now, if I'm going to take their words and make them mean what I want to say, that's not giving them the respect of what they were trying to say. And I can understand what they were trying to say. Hebrew is a language. It still has meaning. So... I would like to give them the credibility and live out their value of saying what they believed. They wouldn't say what they didn't believe. All those martyrs who died with the Shema, they wouldn't say Jesus is king. That was something they wouldn't say, and they wouldn't try to redefine it and fudge it. They wouldn't say what they wouldn't believe. Well, so we have that value too. And the longer you quote something, the more it reflects what you believe. If their service is, our father said, quote, and then the whole thing, well, the longer your quote, the more it reflects what you're, how you're presenting yourself to the world. And the last point I want to make, and then I want to open up for some comments or discussion, is that it's important to accept discontinuities when there are discontinuities. Both Reconstructionism and Humanistic Judaism accept that we don't believe what the traditional liturgy says. The question is whether you pretend there isn't a discontinuity with what your ancestors believed and what you believed by saying the same words, even if you mean something totally different. You're trying to mask that discontinuity. Or do you simply accept the discontinuity? Give them the dignity of what they believe, give you the dignity of what you believe, and accept that there's this disconnection. And from my perspective, that gives you greater credibility when you then say, and here's where we are con continuous. Hevenu shalom aleichem, hine matov, uh, 
right? Those are positive, authentic connections. The value of do not do to others what is hateful to you. Do not oppress a stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. I'll accept the fact that the condemnation of homosexuality is totally backwards and out of date, as reflected in Leviticus. And once I say that, I can then say, but I do like this other piece, with more credibility than trying to hide that discontinuity. So we have to celebrate the discontinuity to have credibility to claim the continuity. If I believe that the authors of rabbinic Judaism uh, were wiser than I were, if I felt the past had more authority than the present, I might not make changes. But I think the present has as much authority as the past. They took what they had and reinterpreted it for their time. We took it. Uh, we take it for our time going forward. They were people like me, no better and no worse. I don't want to say what they said. I want to say what I believe. Um, what we want to do ultimately is celebrate with our entire body, with our heart and our mind. We don't have to be hyper-rational all the time. We can be non-rational and sing melodies that we believe. But we don't want to contradict something that we would believe when we're thinking about it. Meaning is also a kind of resonance. It's not only being old. Okay. So that's a quick snapshot of Reconstructionism, its core ideology, where it started, how it's shifted a bit, uh, an example of their liturgy, and also our uh, approach of why we're not Reconstructionists, even if we have a lot of uh, affinity. So I'm curious if you have any uh, comments or questions or um, other connections to this, uh, this material. Yeah, Ken. Um, the other problem that, that I see with it is that if you're going to, you know, define these, redefine these God words in the prayer book, how does that, you're just kicking the problem down the road because you go back to the Torah and you read the origin stories of who God is and all of these things that you're saying, well, it's all inclusive, this is part of Judaism, and we're going to say these same prayers, but we're going to change the meaning here. We're not changing the meaning in the Torah because that's a literal description of what God did and who God is, and therefore now you have a disconnect there. So that doesn't line up. Well, the question is whether the redefinition is retroactive or not. But even so, you've got actual um, personal God stepping in Right, to right. These, so, these events. So what they might say is that was the conception of God that the Jewish people had then. And this is the conception of God that we have now. We still use the term because it has resonance, because it's the embodiment of all that we value. Actually, um, when humanistic Judaism first started, uh, we would refer to... Um, God is the ideal human being. The problem was his behavior didn't match with uh, what we would like. But uh, that, was, that was an attempt to at least keep the, the word. Um, and so what they might say is that uh, the God reflected in the Bible reflects the ideas of the age that wrote it. Um, and it was their concept of ultimate truth. And we have our concept of ultimate truth. It's just very different. But we use the word God to refer to it because it's the ultimate. This is uh, Paul Tillich's concept of ultimate concern, uh, that your God is whatever is of most importance to you. Um, so that would be how they would try to harmonize the fact that the God reflected in those stories is very different from the concept they're describing in their footnotes here. Um, and, uh, I mean, on one level, they would see us as being pedantic. You know, why are you so, why are you such sticklers for this? I mean, redefining God is a very old tradition. The God of animal sacrifices is very different from the God of prayers 
in rabbinic Judaism, which is very different from the God of Maimonides, this rational, almost a kind of uh, first cause, very distant personality, which is very different from the imminent God of Jewish mysticism, which is emanating into the world in 17 different ways, um, which is very different from the uh, rational creator God described in Reform Judaism. I mean, you've got very different concepts of gods over the course of centuries. Um, why, are, why, why can't we just keep redefining it? But there's a difference between redefining it and then your words and your actions not even lining up. So, and then the other issue I have is, to me, it seems like some of the uh, th there's a, an ethical um, problem with this redefinition, similar to redefining what the um, you know the you know the N word would be, or you know taking some very vile words that are used, or, you know, the um, representative from Alaska who dropped the wetback and saying, well, it, it's not that big a, a word, it's not a racist term. We didn't term. mean it that way back yeah, then. Yeah. Right. And it's like, right. you know, it, just because you are trying to redefine it doesn't, you know, it, it, I think it leads down a, an ethical slippery slope. And well, it's tricky. I mean, one sec. Um, language is a very imperfect medium, right? Um, what I mean uh, can be very different from what other people mean. Um, like, you know, this, uh, you see this kind of thing on uh, Facebook all the time. What a difference a comma makes. Right? Without the comma, <laughs> let's see, Grandma. With the comma, let's see, Grandma. So, language is very uh, complex and imperfect. Our approach is to be as clear as possible within the bounds of both uh, reasonable flexibility and, uh, again, aesthetic creativity. You know, I wouldn't want to be the, uh, the communist thought police going around to poets saying, rivers don't sing to stones. You can only write poetry that reflects reality as reality is. Well, that's not, that's not interesting. You know, art needs to be realistic. It can't be abstract or impressionist. Come on. Right. There's got to be room for fuzz and fudge and fudging and and, and their and their English interpretations do that. I think sure. I think it's that they're taking Hebrew and and not and doing disservice to it by saying it's just an ancient language. It's just the language. See, and the irony is they would say they're privileging it by saying it's so important it has multiple resonance. It can mean this and this. Uh, and our approach is that Hebrew is a language too, and it means what it means, um, and far better to have it mean what you want it, what you're trying to get it to say, than uh, using translation, which isn't authentic to the to the Hebrew, or commentary to try and get to where you want to go. Kaplan was born in the United States? No, born in uh, Europe. Came here very young. See, it makes perfect sense to me where this came from where Kaplan's derivation came from, mm -hmm. because he's taking the philosophy of the time and the people who were craving a connection to probably homeland and the traditions of homeland and modernizing the English to combine, to my mind, I don't know, I haven't done any mm -hmm. studying, maybe a generation gap, right, so that the children and the um, adults in this group can both walk away with something meaningful. Mm -hmm. So it makes perfect sense to me where it came from. Where it is now is what doesn't make sense. <laughs>
Right. Well, and, and you know, when he's working in, at, the J, at JTS in 1909-1910, they haven't even defined themselves as conservative yet. Right. Uh, they don't really evolve as a distinct movement until they start making pronouncements that separate themselves from orthodoxy. I mean, Solomon Schechter coming in didn't see himself as conservative. He saw himself as traditional. Um, it isn't until they authorize mixed seating and they allow driving to synagogue and all that that it's makes first, a big difference. It seems like the first steps toward a secularization, towards a modernization, towards a philosophy that included science and culture. Mm -hmm. But it stopped short of where we want And also notice, He's, he's working at the same time that Reform Judaism is out there, those who were here for the Reform Judaism piece, that Pittsburgh Platform was written 20 years before he starts working as a rabbi. So the Reform Movement is out there also trying to harmonize science and modernity, but they're doing it largely in English or occasionally in German. Um, they're doing it in a very sort of Protestantized, acculturated model. And from Kaplan's perspective, that was too acculturated. You can read in his Judaism and Civilization, he looks at the traditionalists and he rejects them. He looks at the Reform Jews and rejects them and says they're too um, not preserving what is distinctly Jewish. And one of his agendas was to preserve what's distinctly Jewish. Um, so that would include the, the Talis, the Kippah, the, all the liturgy. Those are uh, Jewish folkways. Now he, he came up with the, the very clever formulation that the Halakha, the religious law, has a vote but not a veto. That is, if it says that um, uh, you know you, you can't do such and such, you listen to it, you're aware of it, but it doesn't mean that you have to follow it absolutely. Um, the conservative movement ordained, I'm sorry, the Re Reconstructionist movement ordained women from the very beginning of its seminary. I mean, it took them a while to get to the program, but it, was, it admitted them right away. Um, Kaplan's daughter, in fact. Um, is thought to be the first woman in America to have a bat mitzvah, uh, loosely based on something he saw in Italy when he was traveling. Uh, her name was Judith Kaplan. Um, but uh, she, you know, so that was an innovative uh, step as well. Uh, he was certainly open to being creative and making changes uh, to tradition. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that he was trying to bridge the generations and bridge divergent perspectives in Jewish life. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just say the same prayers, even if we mean different things, can't we say the same prayers? I want, I mean, you hear this from Reconstructionists even today, I want people to be able to go to any synagogue in the world and be able to hear the same melodies and say the same prayers and feel at home, because we are one people. That's how they justified my years of education. Right, so you can go anywhere. Because I might be stuck in Manchuria someday and <laughs> have to go to school. Uh, and I'm able to die. Right? Yes, right. Now, that certainly applies to men. It's not, it's not, not so universal for women. Well, right. <laughs> Who are stuck up in, uh, behind the, uh, the screen and not allowed to sing and blah, blah, blah. So, th that's a big hole in that ideology. But uh, the larger point is to try and uh, create a sense of Jewish continuity with the past and also universality by having all this stuff in common with minor tweaks. I mean, at some level, we're doing similar things. You know, we don't dump some kind of let's make peace on the world. We just tweak it. So you can sing Na'ase Shalom when everyone else is singing Ose Shalom. It's close. Um, and uh, there are some of our community that uh, even think that Hini Matov needs to be fixed because it says Shevet Achim Gam Yachad, literally brothers dwell together. Um, of course, in Hebrew, being a gendered language, there's no generic for siblings. 
So uh, again, you have a, just like in French or Spanish, you have a group, and there's a male and a group of females, it takes the male plural form. Same thing in Hebrew. Uh, but for some, they think that's problematic, so they think Shevet Amim Gamiachad, that peoples dwell together, not just brothers. And again, you can sing it to the same melody, and if uh, it's a concern for you, you can, uh, you can work around it. Um, but that's, that's in a similar vein to what Reconstructionism was trying to do, just not going that far. Um, we are willing on some level to have our kids or even our adult members not be able to go and fully pray everything everywhere. Because in our priority list of what we're going to spend time on, learning how to daven is less high on that list. Yes, I'm sorry, Bobby. Well, I don't know. I really have a problem with changing the meaning of the words. I haven't got a problem that meaning changes through the years. Um, if we look at the word grandma, I think we're all thinking of the same thing. But to do a prayer and have everyone in the room could be thinking it a little bit of different meaning for that prayer, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, we had an issue at my college where they had a beautiful song that was always sung and it was a major song. They said, oh, well, it was written for a black show in blackface. Right. It wasn't, but that was the research was done. Therefore, it could not be sung at our 50th reunion. That's when it came up. And we were really upset. I mean, you don't change the meaning. You can't go back and say, this is what I think happened that day, you know, what they thought. So what's interesting is there was a piece in Tablet Magazine uh, within a few, uh, the last couple of months. It was up on our Facebook page, or at least on my Facebook page. Um, a writer from Tablet Magazine visited the City Congregation for Humanistic Judaism. And he wrote a piece called uh, Why an Atheist Wants to Say Prayers He Doesn't Believe. Because he went to the service and he heard a humanistic Shema. He said, what are you doing changing the Shema? Um, so his approach was, he would rather change what it means than change the words. Because he's used to the words, he's comfortable with the words, this is what he's, his ritual. Um, and so this is, this is in, in some ways dramatizing the split between a reconstructionist and a humanistic approach. Some would say, I object to you changing the meaning of the words. I'd rather change the words. Others would say, I object to you changing the words. You can't change the words, we have to change the meaning of the words. And you're on either side of that split. So in the Catholic Church, you're not allowed, or I don't think you're allowed anymore, to do a Latin mass. Oh, it's, it's optional. Oh, Benedict. So that's what this guy's yeah. doing. He's basically saying, we're going to say these prayers the way they were said in the 12th century, or whenever it was written. No, with, with, so with, with small changes. Stuff, right. It's small the same changes. as a Latin mass to me. Is it, is it harmful to do a Latin mass? Well, okay, so this is a bit of a uh, uh, dismissive comparison. Sometimes you'll have, have people explain these as, well, these are like the, the nursery rhymes of our people. These are the, the comforting melodies and the words that we're used to. It's bitty bitty bum and what's the big deal? Well, my two responses to that are, don't you have any higher aspirations for what you're doing than just the nursery rhyme? Or, even more offensive, so is this analogous to me singing a Christmas carol? 
You see, when I sing a Christmas carol, and I know the words to lots of Christmas carols, when I sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, may nothing you dismay, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day, to save us all from Satan's wiles while we had gone astray. Do I really believe that Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day? No, I'm, the melody is cute, I know the words, I'm singing the one. Is that what I'm saying at high holidays? Is that what I'm saying at a funeral? Am I, am I treating this core expression of Jewish identity like it's a Christmas carol and it doesn't matter what I'm saying? If they change the meaning of Shema, then yeah, that's what they're doing. Again, this is, this is our objection to it. Are you allowed to change the words or are you stuck with the words? Or are the words stuck with their meaning and then we have to change the words? That's the, uh, that's the divergence. And on some level, you know, it's like, which is your flavor, favorite flavor of ice cream? I mean, can you really argue that chocolate is better than vanilla, or vanilla is better than chocolate, or strawberry is better than both? I mean, you can try. You're not going to get very far. There's not a lot of ground of common discourse there. Um, so in the end, you know, whether the changing the words is more problematic or changing the meaning is more problematic, some will it'll work for some and uh, it'll work for us. Uh, others will work for others. The point is that none of us have the right answer because we're both small. Humanistic uh, Judaism is around 30 congregations or communities. Uh, Reconstructionism is closer to 100. Uh, they also have many more rabbis they've turned out because they started their seminary in 1968. We started ours in 19... Our first graduation was 1999. So we're 30 years behind them in some ways. Um, and their rabbis, again, because they can use the old words, can work in halals, can work in uh, Jewish communal agencies, Jewish schools, and other things. Um, because they don't have a problem saying the old words. Ours are somewhat less employable because we, we tell them that, you know, you want to say what you believe um, and that isn't what everyone out there is used to saying. Um, in many ways, both we and Reconstructionism articulate the lifestyle of a lot of American Jews who are involved in movements or unconnected to anything. Uh, the trick is neither of us have been purely successful at, uh, at getting that message out as far as we would, uh, we would like. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke. 